A reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 down to the end of the chapter. Um, and the passage is entitled, or begins, Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. Let's hear the word of God. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Amen, and may God bless this reading. It's good to read Scripture, and it's good to sing Scripture as well, which is what we've just been doing. Let's pray. Father, as we come to contemplate your word this morning, we pray that you'd open it to us by your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today's um, passage is set, a little bit of geography again, in a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So we're, we're back up the north again like we were last week too. And Caesarea Philippi was built by a guy called Philip, held to the Philippi, um, who was actually a relative of King Herod's. He was a, a lesser king up in that area for a while. And he built it in honor of... Caesar, hence Caesarea Philippi, and it was a place where there was a temple to Caesar as God, as well as several other pagan gods as well. But it is important in the gospel story because it's a hinge place. It's a turning point in the gospel story. Um, in the gospel of Mark, it's right in the middle. It's at the end of chapter 8, and there are 16 chapters, so we're halfway through. Now, 
little bit of, of a lesson here. In the original composition that Mark did, there weren't any chapters and verses. It was just the whole thing was written like you would read a book. Uh, it's one of the reasons why when ministers and others take section at a time, they're doing something that's slightly artificial, and it's really good just to read the whole story right through. But this is a, a central point where Jesus takes them aside and he asks them, who do you say that I am? And from this point, the whole of the gospel will start heading towards Jerusalem and the cross and Easter. Now, the place that Caesarea Philippi um, was um, has been excavated, and I've actually been there. And it's a very good place to go. It's a very famous place to go because it's right on the frontiers of Israel. Um, it's in what we now call the Golan Heights. And when you're there, you can actually see four countries because you can see Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Israel from one place. You can see four countries. Well, that's the idea because I'm Scottish. And when I got there, it was raining. And it was raining rather like it's raining today. It was like scotch mist. Forget seeing four countries. You couldn't see four fingers. It was that sort of day. So I've got no pictures worth showing you from my trip there. But actually, in some ways, that captures what this passage is about. Because before they went to Caesarea Philippi in Bethsaida, which is back down in the Galilee region, there's another story that's right before this story. And that's a story where Jesus heals a man and the man can only see a little bit. And then Jesus has to touch him again. You think, what's going on here? Is this like Jesus didn't manage it to do it properly first time? Had to have another shot. But there's something else going on here, and it fits with this story because, you see, this story of Caesarea Philippi is something else because Peter in Caesarea Philippi sees that Jesus is the Messiah, and then immediately after, Jesus calls him Satan. And so we've got this bit where Peter is going to see, and yet not see. Just like the man saw but didn't see. Or I stood up looking at four countries and could see them and couldn't see them at the same time. And that's really interesting because it, it reminds us from the Bible here that the story of our walk with Jesus doesn't go in straight lines. You know, last week we were singing Oh Happy Day. And I love that song, isn't it? Yeah, oh, happy day, we're all clapping along. But actually, if you listen to the words, oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. And one of the problems with that is that's not everybody's experience. Now, if I were to ask you, there'll be some folk who, when you look at your walk with Jesus to this point, you can see there was a day. There was a day where it was that I didn't see and then I saw where I understood his love for me. Uh, for some folk, it was, was, was at a particular time where they, they came forward or they gave their life to Jesus. And if I were to ask you, hands up, how many folk could actually say, if you look back on your life, there was a particular moment where everything changed for you? Would anyone? 
own that? There's a few nods. I could ask you to put your hand up as a witness and a testimony at this point. Anyone say that's their story? Yeah, and that's fantastic. Praise the Lord. But let me say this. How many folk would say, actually, as I look back on my Christian life to this point, it was seeing and not seeing. It was more of a journey than a decisive point. You see, think about the Bible this way. You've got two stories, two really prominent stories in the New Testament. One is Paul. And we all know Paul, converted on the Damascus Road, went from hating Christians to being a Christian. Bang, he saw Jesus. He saw the light. That was the moment Paul became a Christian. But if you think about Peter, when did Peter become a Christian? Was it when Jesus came along and said, follow me? And he left his nets and he followed him. Is that the point that he made a decision for Jesus? Well, yeah, it could be. Or, 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 or was it the point where he stepped out of the boat and walked on water? Was that the point he trusted in Jesus really for the first time? Or, or was it the point where, where he came that day in Caesarea Philippi and said, you're the Christ, the Son of God? But yet he didn't understand so much. Or was it the day after Jesus had died for him by the lakeside, he knew the forgiveness of Christ who said, feed my sheep? Or was it the day when the Holy Spirit came upon him for the first time at Pentecost? You see what I'm saying? Peter's story is a journey story. And if I were to ask you how many folk, that's how the Lord took you forward. It's a journey with different points and processes. Is that you? That's certainly me doesn't matter. One of the wonderful things about the stories in the Bible is that they affirm the fact that God works in different people's lives in different ways. Hallelujah for those who saw in a moment, and hallelujah for those for whom it's a journey. And by the way, the journey hasn't ended yet, because maybe you see, but you don't see. And I certainly know that our daily life is a bit like that as well. I, you know, I, so many times that we have preached on a Sunday and we've sung the songs and we've talked about loving the Lord Jesus and knowing His forgiveness and His grace. And then what's the next thing we obsess with? It's something trivial and petty about the order of the chairs or whatever it is in the church. And suddenly we are those who see, but we don't see. We say, you are the Christ and the Messiah, but we haven't actually understood where that takes us from that point. And that's the journey that we keep needing to move on. At the center of this journey is a question that Jesus throws out. Who do you say that I am? That's the most important bit that's here. Not what do you make of the church or the mission or what are you going to give up or any of those things. Who do you say that I am? And in one sense, as we read through the gospel of Mark, that is the question that Mark is bringing to us all the time. Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been healing. Jesus has been forgiving sins. Jesus has shown authority until the crowds are asking a question. Who is this man? And lots of folk have got different answers. Here we find that some are saying he's John the Baptist. That's actually what King Herod thought. He thought he killed John the Baptist and John the Baptist is back to get him. Some people thought he's a prophet, brilliant preacher, like one of the prophets of old. Some people think he's Elijah because Elijah was supposed to come again before the end times. And people have got all sorts of opinions. As you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll find them. His family just think he's gone bonkers. 
Sometimes our families fear that of us as well, don't they? Um, the Pharisees think he's come from Satan. He's evil. And the people in Nazareth think he's just one of them that's got too full of himself. They run him out of town. Who do you say I am is the question here. What about you? And that's the thing that it keeps coming back to the gospel. Whether it's at that one flashpoint at a crusade or a point where Christ grabs hold of your life, or whether it's on that journey at the various points, it's always this question. What do you make of Jesus? Who is he to you? And Peter at that point says very clearly, you are the Messiah. The Greek word he uses is the word Christos, the word which we get from Christ. It means the same thing, and it means the anointed one. Just like we anoint a king, he's saying you are the king, except it's more than that because the anointed one was prophesied in the Old Testament as being the king that God would send, the great deliverer. And Peter says, you are the Messiah, and you can just hear that moment, you might have heard the hallelujah, he's got it. He's got it. It's a bold thing for Peter to say, actually. Not just because he's mouthing what lots of people are thinking, but because it's actually quite dangerous in the political consequences to say that this man is the Messiah. And he's dead right. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, which gives us a bit of the longer story, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because this has been revealed by God. It's as if Jesus says to him at that point, top of the class, you've got the answer right. Except, has he? Has he really understood? It's interesting that at that point, right after that, it says this. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. And you see, again, this story of journeys, because we can get to that point where we think, I've got it now. You know, some folk have done that for years. They sort of, you grow through Sunday school, you learn more about the Bible, you, you one day decide you're going to join the church, you stand up here and you say, Jesus is Lord, that's it. I've done it. Peter comes and he makes his profession of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, right, great. Now I will begin to teach you. You know, that's one of the reasons I hate the term new communicants class, because it sounds like you, you do your, you know, you learn to drive and you, you go to a class and then you pass a test and then you can drive. I remember a driving instructor saying to me once, I wish when people passed their test, they'd come back for another 20 lessons because that's when I could teach them how to drive. We are always to be learners. The word disciple, by the way, means learner. There's no other way to be a follower of Jesus than to be someone that's learning. So Jesus begins to teach them, and he begins to teach them about the cross. The Son of God must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and must rise again. Jesus isn't just simply saying these things are going to happen because there's opposition. He's saying this suffering is the purpose. It is the mission. It is why I've come. The cross is not an accident. It's the eternal plan of God for salvation. 
And Peter just sits dumbfounded at this because nobody before has ever suggested that the Messiah would come and suffer. Yeah, there's bits in the Old Testament that that talk about a suffering servant, but no one has put these two things together before. And Peter starts to say, yeah, 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 well, but no. Lord, you're the Messiah. You're right about that, Jesus. It's it's almost as if Jesus is the one that's doing the test now. Jesus, you're the Messiah. I get it. You're right about that. But see, when you're talking about suffering and death, you're wrong about that. Your theology's wrong, Jesus. Your understanding of the Bible's wrong, Jesus. That's not what it's about. That can't be right. That's bad theology. Let me straighten you out. That's that word, rebuke, Jesus. Let me straighten you out. Let me tell you what you really are about. Let me tell you what the mission is. You, you think you've got this plan, says Peter. I've got a better one. Why don't we have no suffering, no death, no defeat, no unpopularity, just big victory and everybody following us? That's what we really want. That would be a much better plan, Jesus. So you can take your plan and throw it out of the window. I've got a better one. You see the problem with that because... That's the point that Jesus says, <coughs> Satan. <coughs> Satan. What he's really saying this is, Peter, my father has a plan. My father has intended this since before the beginning of time. Don't you dare come and think your ideas and your values and your priorities are the things that are going to drive that. But we do this all the time. We come to prayer, we come to the church, we come to what's going on, and we say, this is what is important. This is what must matter. This is the way it should be. This is the, 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 the way it has to happen. And we forget that Jesus doesn't come to fit into our expectations. He doesn't come along and say, well, I want you to follow me What time have you got available? When would it suit you to do it? What type of Jesus do you want me to be for you? What type of values do you have that I can affirm and and support? Jesus doesn't come like that at all. He comes and he says, I am coming and you need to change and conform to my way. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we need to keep rereading the Bible. Because when we don't read the Bible, particularly when we don't read the Gospels, we begin to think that Jesus is a little bit like us. So the things that are important to me are obviously the key bits that are important to Jesus. The values that I have are obviously in line with Jesus' values. The things that my society says are right and wrong are obviously going to line up with Jesus. But you see, what we've done is just what they did the children of Israel, when they went into the desert and said, we don't like God with his Ten Commandments, we'll go and make an idol. And we'll shape it the way we want it. And by the way, Christians, we do that all the time, every single one of us. Then Jesus says something that is very tough. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, we've said it already, self-denial we don't want. We want pancakes without self-denial, don't we? Preferably with lots of jam and butter and a bit of cream. That would be really good. Ash? No thanks. Denial? 
no thanks. Getting in the way of what I want to do for the next 40 days, nah. Jesus says, if we are to live for him, we must be ready to give everything for him, to deny ourselves, and that is the only way to follow him, to follow Jesus. But the two things are connected. Understanding that Jesus comes to suffer and to die for me, and not just to give me victory. And understanding what it means to follow him and go together. I mean, let me just be a bit personal here. A call to follow Jesus in, in, into ministry, I, I, I sometimes find it really quite difficult because what I want to follow Jesus into is success. Like anybody in their job, I want the affirmation of seeing things go in the right direction. Big crowds, more money, more commitment, society transformed. Why do I want all those things? Sometimes I want them because they affirm me. They make me feel good. They give me a sense of worth. And I suspect as we go through church together, that's the same for all of us. If everything goes in the right direction, we feel good. But that's back to saying Jesus the Messiah, and the Messiah is all about success. What do we do when it's tough? When Christians disappoint you, when the church lets you down, when everything seems to go pear-shaped, it is very tempting at that point to say, I didn't sign up for that. The hard way, the self-denial. Or what do we do when we follow the Lord and we're finding we're in physical suffering and our families are not going the way we wanted it to go and our life's disappointing as we say, Lord, I, I didn't sign up for that. You've disappointed me. I wanted a Messiah, but I didn't want the suffering and the self-denial. You see, the Lord comes and says, it's not about you. Because the only way to follow the Lord into this is to understand that our sense of who we are isn't about the success He gives us, it's about the love He showed us. He died for me on the cross. He gave Himself that all my sins and all my failures could be forgiven. I don't need to be a people pleaser to know that I am significant. I don't need success or crowds or everything to go smoothly to know that what I am doing and what the Lord is doing is significant because I know that I am loved because He came and He suffered and He died and he rose again for me. For everyone who wants to save their life will lose it. But everyone who loses their life for me and, my, and for the gospel will save it. You see, what is being said here is if you try to hold on to this thing the way that you want it, it will always disappoint you. It will never be what you want it to be. But if you give that up because you know that Christ has died for you. This isn't, to go back to the Lenten story, about saying, well, you know, what you want isn't self-indulgence, but what you want is to give lots of stuff up in Lent in order that you can feel more spiritual and grow more spiritual. Because if you do that, you will fail as much as if you just eat all the fat stuff. 
But if that Lenten story turns you to what Jesus has done and what he has given up and how much he has loved you and how much he will forgive you when you fail and fall down, then you gain something you cannot possibly lose because you're held in the Son of God who gave his life for you and holds you. And when he returns, he will know you. And that is the gospel. Amen.